Welcome to Bell Interrupted. Are you out of your damn mind? You get to drink from the fire hole! This is an embarrassment, a disgrace! What? What's the matter, kid? You got wax in your ears? Hello and welcome to Film Erupted. This is the show where I get to do whatever I want while dealing with the constant antics of Smash. We can review movies, video games, and who knows what else. Episodes can be spooky to oddly informative to downright stupid. I am your host, Phil Allen, and I do welcome you to the show. Today's show is going to be about unfortunate souls that have been lost at sea. So we're going to get into this. We're going to go through so many different people in so many different situations. Your mind is going to be blown. It's going to just explode. But we got a lot to get to, like I said. So we might as well jump right into this. Everybody, Circular Logic Studios presents Abandoned at Sea. Now, before we really get going here, just listen to those waves. Hear them? It's all you can hear. Imagine being stuck out at sea. No radio, sometimes nobody to talk to, and all you hear is those little waves and nothing. Oh my god, I think I would just put a bullet in my brain. It's like one of my worst fears ever is to be stuck out in the open ocean. Be quiet! So we got a lot of stories here. A lot of stories of crazy things that have happened to people. So let's let's get into our first story here today. Now, I'm going to butcher these people's names. Philo Philo Antunui Nasa and Samuel Palacy. Start off with a bang here, not being able to speak at all. In many Pacific Island chains, people use small boats to sail from one island to another. The islands are close enough together that sailing... From one to the other is a pretty simple, cheap, and frequent mode of travel. For three teenage boys on the small island of Tikilau, sailing was routine. However, when Philo, blah, 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 the three boys, set sail on October 5th, 2010, it would be a much longer trip than any of them were anticipating. Shortly after sailing into the ocean, the three teens lost sight of the shore and became disoriented. Not knowing which way was home, the group became lost, drifting farther and farther from land. They had brought enough water for them to last two days, but that quickly ran out, and they had to rely on rainwater. Oh, God, I would kill myself here. After a few weeks, with no food and no sign of rescue, they grew desperate enough to catch a bird and eat it. Ugh. Wait, how do they catch a bird? Was it just... A bird's like, I need to take a, a, a chill pill, I can't keep flying, and just, like sit on their thing? I don't know. And how did they catch it? Like, with their hands? I need more details on that. Meanwhile, after a month with no news, their community believed that the boys were dead. A memorial service for the boys was attended by about 500 people, which is about a third of the total population of the island. Having spent more than a month adrift at sea, the three boys had no food, no water, and were suffering from extreme exposure. Their situation was so dire that they began drinking seawater, which is a sure sign that death is near. Yeah, that's a huge no-no. You don't ever, ever drink the ocean. You do that, you're going to die real soon. With only days or even hours to live, 
They were spotted by a fishing boat halfway between Samoa and Fiji. They had drifted over 500 miles. The three boys were rescued and taken to a hospital in Fiji, and then back to their homes. They had been lost at sea for 50 days. Brad Cavana and Deborah Kiley Deborah was no stranger to the seas. She had spent most of her life working as a crew member on yachts around the world. So she thought that signing up on the trash man on a... What? Signing up on the trash man? Who goes on a boat called trash man? That's a bad omen right there. Anyway, she signed up to go on the trash man in October of 1982. She thought it would just be another job, but it turned out to be anything but. The captain of the ship was John Lipouth. He brought his girlfriend Meg Mooney along for... Mooney! Oh my god, from Killer Clowns from Outer Space, it's Mooney. No, 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 not that awesome sheriff. There were also two other crew members on the trip. They were Mark Adams and Brad Kavana. The plan was to take the yacht from Annapolis, Maryland, down to Florida to meet up with its owner. The first half of the trip was pretty smooth sailing, although Kylie started noticing things that made her uneasy. Lipouth kept making excuses to go below deck, and Kylie soon realized that their captain was afraid of the ocean. Lipoff and Adams also spent the entire voyage completely drunk. Of the five people on the yacht, only Kylie and Kavana, whatever that stupid's name is, were experienced, capable sailors. After the boat passed North Carolina, the trip took a turn for the worse. A massive storm appeared out of nowhere, and the trash man, I love that name, headed right into the heart of it. Kylie recalls wind speeds over 70 knots and 40-foot waves so powerful they ripped holes in the boat. Two days after they set sail, the yacht, torn apart by the sea, began to sink. Oh, God, that sounds terrible. The crew managed to make it to a lifeboat, but not before Mooney was seriously injured by the ship's rigging, suffering severe lacerations on her arms and legs. Her bleeding attracted sharks, who followed the lifeboat for the remainder of the journey. The crew found themselves adrift with no supplies or water miles from land. Two days after the trash man sunk, Lipouth and Adams, already dehydrated from alcohol and dying from thirst, began drinking seawater. They started hallucinating and rambling incoherently. On the third day, Lipouth, in a state of delirium, jumped into the water and attempted to swim to shore. He was immediately attacked and killed by sharks. Soon, Adams jumped overboard as well, muttering something about going to get cigarettes. <laughs> Wow, what a classic drunk. He's like, oh, God, I'm, I'm hungover. I need cigarettes. And he just jumped into the water. What an idiot. The sharks also attacked him. Whoa. So violently that the boat was spun around and the water turned red. So, Adams, that was a bad idea to go get some smokes in the middle of the ocean. That night, Mooney scubbubbed to her injuries, dying of blood poisoning. So, man, we're three of them. Kick the bucket. Kylie and Kavana are the only two left. They ended up having to toss uh, the girl Mooney's body overboard because uh, it was getting gross. And she too was eaten by sharks. It was like a shark fest out there. It was a sharknado. Shortly after, Kylie and Kavana, close to death themselves, were spotted by a Russian cargo ship off the coast of Cape Hatteras. They were rescued four days after they had abandoned ship and five days after setting sail. Stephen Callahan. Stephen Callahan is an expert on sailing. A naval architect who has been sailing ships since he was young, but he built his own boat called the Napoleon Solo. 
and set sail from Rhode Island in 1981. His travels led him all over the Atlantic, first to Bermuda, all the way to the coast of Europe. On his way back, bound for Antigua, he ran into trouble. About a week after he had set sail for home, a storm started brewing. The storm was relatively mild, and Callahan said that he wasn't worried. However, his boat hit something that tore a gaping hole in the bottom. Yeah, no, that's a problem, Callahan. Callahan suspected that it was either a whale or a large shark. The boat began filling with water, and Callahan made it to his inflatable raft. But he needed the emergency supplies in the cabin, which was already underwater. So he dove in again and again and managed to retrieve food, water, flares, a spear gun, solar stills, and a handful of other items. All in all, he was particularly well-equipped to be adrift. And it was a good thing, too, because Callahan drifted on his raft for 76 days. During that time, he faced threats from starvation, dehydration, sharks, and multiple raft punctures. Finally, he was spotted by some sailors off the coast of Guadalupe. He had lost a third of his weight and he could barely stand. He was taken to the hospital for treatment. However, Callahan didn't even stay the night, opting instead to recuperate on the island. Stephen Callahan would work as an advisor on the movie Life of Pi, providing his sea survival expertise to make the film more realistic. Be quiet! (sighs) Sorry about that, had to yell at the dog starts barking. I can't make him stop. (sighs) All right. William and Simone Butler. In 1989, whales attacked this couple's massive boat. I didn't know that whale attacks were like a real thing. Did you? Like, I mean, maybe like an orca or something, but I didn't think like whales actually went after like ships and stuff. Like I would think they would just leave them alone. Like maybe like a humpback whale, like accidentally bumping into one or something like, you know, surfacing or, you know, they don't really realize what they're doing. They bump into one, whatever, but like attacking it. I don't know. Let's, let's find out. Let's, let's investigate farther. The Florida couple said that their pleasure boat was sunk and they survived 66 days at sea by eating raw fish and drinking purified water doesn't sound too bad a little sushi bar out there the survivors told authorities that they lost a great deal of weight from the ordeal william butler said that their 40-foot boat was attacked and sunk by several son-of-a-bitch whales on june 15th about 1200 miles southwest of costa rica as the boat was sinking they grabbed fishing rods and a saltwater purifier and got into a rubber lifeboat which they remained in for two months. As the lifeboat drifted slowly eastwards over two months, they caught 400 to 500 pounds of fish. This really was a sushi bar. Oh my god, they had California roll. Wait, no, that's that's imitation crab. They had salmon roll. They had a tuna roll. They had the spicy tuna roll. They had the spider roll. Wait, no, I think that's soft shell crab. They had a little of everything out there. 400 to 500 pounds of fish. Hold on. Wait a minute. They're in a rubber lifeboat, and they're eating this much fish? They were going to town. Anyway, they used a raft repair kit to seal punctures that was caused by multiple shark attacks. So it's sharks and whales out there. you got to beware. They're everywhere. William Butler said that several times the couple spotted ships but were unable to flag them down. Could you imagine that? That would be so disheartening to be like, oh my god, there's someone. Oh my god, oh my god, no! No! 
A Costa Rican Coast Guard ship making a patrol about 30 miles off the coast spotted the raft and rescued the couple. Poon Lim. Quite a name. Poon Lim holds the world record for the longest survival on a life raft. Poon was a Chinese sailor on a British merchant vessel during World War II. The ship had left Cape Town, South Africa, on its way to New York when it was attacked by a German U-boat a hundred miles off the coast of Brazil. The ship was destroyed, but Poon managed to escape with a life jacket. He was the ship's sole survivor. Can you imagine that? Talk about survivor's guilt. After about two hours, Poon found a small wooden raft and climbed aboard. Wait, so you're telling me that this guy swam for two hours? in the open ocean when everybody else died. Like I said, this is like my worst nightmare, especially being stuck on something and just drifting overnight when it gets dark out and you can't see anything except the stars and the water. Oh, God. And shark fins and I don't even care so much about the sharks. Just the idea of being out there and being so alone. You might as well be on like the moon, you know? God, and it'd probably be cold. I mean, depending where you are, and ugh, you get really sunburned during the day. Oh my God, there's so many bad things that could happen. Like I said, I would just, I would be like that guy and be like, I gotta go, I gotta go get a pack of smokes and just jump off. Anyway, enough about me. Let's get back to Poon, but old Pooner here. What's Poony doing? Oh yes. So amazingly, um, he found a raft. Now, this is kind of crazy. So he found a raft that contained some survival supplies, like food, water, and flares. How lucky as fuck is this guy? But as the days turned into weeks and his food started to run low, Poon had to improvise. He began by crafting a makeshift fishing hook and started catching fish. With his new food supply and the water from his raft, he felt that he might be able to make it. He still had his flares, and all he had to do was wait for a ship to come close. But then, things took a turn for the worse. A storm hit, and Poon lost all his food and water. So he went from having it made to being totally, totally effed. With no supplies and close to death, Poon had to go to extremes to survive. With the last of his strength, he caught a passing bird and killed it, and drank its blood to quench his thirst. Wow, Poon knows no boundaries. He will just snatch that bird right out of his flying by wow gotcha and just just start drinking its blood like a vampire poon is the fucking man i'm gonna start cursing now poon strengthened his fishing line and started trying to catch sharks he managed to hook one and brought it on board he drank the blood from the shark's liver to sustain himself wait he didn't eat any of the shark he's just drinking blood this guy's this is hardcore my kind of guy after 133 days Poon drifted close to the shore of Brazil and was rescued by some fishermen who took him to a hospital to recover. Despite being at lost at sea for almost half a year, he had lost only 20 pounds and could walk by himself. Remember, this dude was alone for 133 days. Like I said before, the loneliness would probably drive me nuts. Could you imagine being alone for that long with literally nothing to do? Nothing. It's not like this dude was caught on a little survival raft. It's not like he had 
you know, like his yacht, just like the engine went bad and he was just drifting, couldn't call for help. For some reason, his radio is gone. It wasn't something like that. No, he's stuck on a little raft with nothing, nothing. He's trying to fish. This guy's snatching birds out of the air. Like a MacGyver out there. He's, that's incredible. 133 days. Maurice and Marilyn Bailey. In 1973, Maurice and Marilyn Bailey were planning to live out their dream of moving from their home in England to New Zealand. They sold their house, bought a yacht, and set sail with their possessions. They believed that the trip would be a pleasant journey. They were wrong. The first half of their voyage went well, and they passed through the Panama Canal in February of that year. Soon after, they ran into trouble, or more accurately, trouble ran into them. While both of the Baileys were below deck, they felt a massive impact. Rushing to the deck, the couple saw a whale diving below the water and a large hole in their hull. Son of a bitch, it was a whale again. The ship quickly began to sink, and the Baileys grabbed what little they could and headed for the life raft. The couple were stranded in the Pacific with a few days worth of food, a compass, some flares, and little else. They collected rainwater to drink, and when their food ran out, they ate birds, fish, and even turtles. So man, these there must be like an abundance... I didn't think there would be an abundance of food out in the middle of the ocean. You know? Like, I think of closer to shore, there's a lot more life, but I guess there was enough here that these, these people who get stuck out in the middle can... In the middle of the ocean can find some food. During their time at sea, they even spotted seven ships, which they attempted to signal, but no one noticed them. As the weeks stretched into months, they became badly sunburned and malnourished. Their life raft started to deflate. Ugh, God. And they were plagued by sharks. After 117 days stranded at sea, with no supplies and near the brink of death, they were finally rescued. A passing Korean ship spotted them in the water and changed course to bring them aboard. They could barely move, and they were so weak that they couldn't eat solid foods. The Korean ship dropped the Baileys off at Hawaii, where they immediately vowed to build another yacht and return to the sea. God. With the proceeds from a book they wrote about their experiences, they did indeed build a second yacht and spent years sailing around the world uneventfully. Wow. So they were just 117 days. And they're like, let's get back out there. Get on the horse. Let's go. Man, good for them. I would be like, oh, hell no. I won't even go on a cruise now. And I've had no problems with boats in my life. Won't do it. You know why? Because they sink. All right, here's the Japanese one. I'm not going to be able to pronounce this. Hiro Mitsu Shinkawa. After a devastating earthquake and tsunami hit Japan in 2011, I love the Japanese tsunami videos on YouTube. Oh my god, you gotta go check them out. They are so freaking scary. I've talked about this before, I think, on the podcast. We're gonna do it again. A lot of those videos, it's not like some large, like, 100-foot wave coming at you where you'd be like, oh my god, run! It's not like a skyscraper of water. It's really deceiving in these videos. You see some water coming up and... People are like, what is it, huh? What's going on? And then a little more water comes, and then it's like almost like a, like a little river, like a, an extra river on top of the water comes in, and then it starts just barreling, just trucking in unreal amounts of water into these harbors and these cities in Japan, and they just get freaking leveled. 
I mean, this water is coming in. It's such a tremendous force. It's destroying buildings, just lifting them off their foundations. It's incredible. Cars flying everywhere. Boats are tipping over. Like, there's like boats going down streets and stuff. I mean, you've got to watch these videos. It's it's freaking surreal. It's like the apocalypse. It's um, unbelievable stuff. Anyway, <laughs> sorry, I got off on a tangent there. The tsunami wiped out every structure, as Phil just stated, including Hiromitsu's home. Miraculously, the 60-year-old man survived by clutching onto a raft made out of his roof for two days before he was found. So I'm assuming this guy got hit by the tsunami and then sucked out to sea, is what I'm going to guess here. Uh, Hiromitsu was found by a defense destroyer 10 miles from shore. Yep, okay, that's what happened. His house in Miniami, Soma, city of Fukushima... The Fukushima Prefecture. I read about Fukushima like almost nightly. I do a search, and I read about the the nuclear reactor that uh, blew up there. Love reading about some Fukushima. Anyway, I love disasters. Sorry, Japan. The Fukushima Prefecture had been ripped from its foundations, and they found the house swept away in the retreating tsunami. He was spotted waving a piece of red cloth and clinging to the wreckage. He told his rescuers that the tsunami had hit as he and his wife returned home to gather some possessions after the earthquake, and that his wife was swept away. She is still missing to this day. Several helicopters and ships passed him, but none of them noticed him initially. He thought he was going to die the very day that he was rescued. He was reported to be in good condition and taken to a hospital by helicopter. Military officials said mild weather and relatively calm seas had helped him stay adrift for 48 hours. It's not bad for a 60-year-old dude getting sucked out to sea. It's not bad. That's horrible what happened to his wife, but that is quite a tale of survival. This next one I actually watched a movie about, which I'll briefly talk about here. The Rose Noel Crew. John Glenn, Richard Hyrigal, Jim Nakapa and Phil Hoffman were four friends who decided to take a winter vacation to the island of Tonga. I believe they were from New Zealand, if I remember correctly. They left on their ship, the Rose Noel, and hoped for smooth sailing. On June 4th, 1989, three days after they set sail, a massive wave came out of nowhere, hit the ship, and flipped it completely upside down, severely damaging it. Now that is something called a rogue wave. Doesn't have to necessarily be from a storm. And so my wife didn't believe that rogue waves were real, so I had to, of course, go on YouTube and and Wikipedia, which is always correct, and show her that rogue waves are indeed real. I mean, the ocean is massive, so who knows how these waves can get started sometimes. But yeah, these people got wrecked. They got flipped and really messed up their boat. The crew found themselves trapped in the ship's cabin, which began rapidly filling with water. They set off a signal beacon in an attempt to get help, but the beacon went unanswered. Alone and trapped in the dark cabin, the crew had to chop a hole in the hull of the ship to escape. That was almost like a tongue twister. Fortunately for the Rose Noel, though now upside down, it did not completely sink, and its wreckage served as a twisted vessel of which the men could still float. Yeah, so it's kind of nuts. When they got flipped... You would assume a boat is going to sink, but it was kind of like a fancy catamaran kind of thing. So it still stayed afloat, even though it was upside down. And the one guy who was on the ship actually built it. 
and he built it for that very reason, which is a pretty cool idea, really. I mean, it's almost unsinkable unless it, the actual structure is completely destroyed, which it wasn't. It just got flipped. A week later, with supplies running out, the signal beacon stopped working, and they still had no rescue or response. The crew were on their own. After the ship's water reserves ran out, the crew rigged up a system to collect rainwater and started catching fish for food. They were still adrift, but they had food, water, and shelter. So they were in no immediate danger so long as the weather didn't turn bad. They drifted in this manner for weeks without rescue. They soon began diving into the wreckage to recover pieces of the ship that they could use. That makes sense, right? They know the ship is flipped, but hey, you gotta you gotta do what you gotta do out there. So you dive down in there, hold your breath, go in, grab whatever you can, come out. That's pretty cool. It's pretty innovative, right? They managed to recover a gas cooker so that the four men could have occasional barbecues. Oh hell yeah. On September 30th, 118 days after they were set adrift, the four castaways and the wreckage of the Rose Noel washed up on a beach in New Zealand. They were extremely lucky. A few months later, the wind and water currents would have taken them in the direction of South America. The movie Abandoned is about them. That's the movie I watched. I recommend you watch it. It was, I believe, a made-for-TV movie for, like, Australia, New Zealand. I'm not even sure. I actually really liked it. I forget where I found it, my wife and I. It was it. I don't remember now. It's not really important where we found it online, streaming or something, but it was a good movie. I enjoy movies about people being on stranded, uh, stranded on the sea. I, of course, I would not be able to handle it for more than 10 minutes myself, but I like watching other people deal with it. And the things that these people came up with, creative ways to stay alive, uh, very interesting. So, movie called Abandoned, I would recommend you check it out. It's good. Burmese Fisherman In December 2008, a small Thai fishing boat sank while on an expedition, and most of its 20 crew members were never heard from again. But 25 days later, a customs plane spotted an icebox bobbing near Horn Island in Australian waters, and in it were two Burmese men from the fishing boat disaster. They had made it through Cyclone Charlotte and shark-infested waters by sheltering in a cool box usually used to store fish. The tiny cooler had acted as a lifeboat for the men. This is one worth doing a quick Google search. You could literally just type in Burmese fishermen like found at sea. And these dudes are basically sitting in like a large cooler. And they lived for 25 days. That's amazing. In a cooler. Two men in a cooler. Should be a movie. With a baby. Two men in a cooler and a baby. Two men, a baby, and a cooler. Starring Nicolas Cage and Dennis Quaid. Louis Zamperini Louis Zamperini first made national headlines in 1938 when he traveled to Berlin to compete in the Olympics. He ran the 500-meter dash and placed eighth, which I think sucks, but it was more than enough to earn him a spot in the history books, and he was quite happy. However, he wasn't done yet. In 1941, just a few months prior to the attack at Pearl Harbor, Zamperini enlisted in the United States military. He became a second lieutenant in the Air Force, 
and when the war began, he was deployed as a bombarder in the Pacific. In 1943, during a search and rescue mission, his bomber suffered a mechanical failure that brought it down. It crashed in the ocean, and eight of the 11 crew members died. The three that survived were Zamperini and his crewmates, Phillips and Macanera. The three crewmates were adrift in the Pacific Ocean in enemy territory, with no food, water, or supplies. They managed to salvage two rafts from the wreckage of their plane and collected enough rainwater to survive. They ate small fish that they caught and birds. They drifted like this for weeks. After 33 days, McNamara died, leaving only Williams and Zamperini. Two weeks later, their rafts washed ashore in the Marshall Islands, and the two men were grateful to be alive. No, they were immediately captured by the Japanese and put into imprisonment camps. Zamperini and Phillips were sent to various POW camps, and Zamperini eventually found himself at this Neo Tutsi whatever camp in northern Japan. There, he was tortured for two years by the infamous prison guard Watanabe, one of Japan's most brutal war criminals. So not only did this guy get stuck floating around, he gets immediately caught and tortured by one of the worst people of World War II. That's terrible luck. When the war finally ended in 1945, Zamperini was released and finally reunited with his family. Oh, hell yeah, Zamperini. This guy made it through everything. I bet he had some of the most incredible stories. Oguri Jukichi. Jukichi was a sailor during Japan's Edo period, about 200 years ago. I used to love a sushi restaurant called Edo Sushi. Very good. Anyways, not the point here. He was the captain of 14 men. He was transporting soybeans to the city of Edo, Edo Sushi Restaurant. No, it wasn't. Which would become the present-day Tokyo. When his ship was caught in a massive storm. It's always these storms or, you know whales or the storm damaged the ship's mast and set them adrift very very quickly the crew exhausted their supply of food and water they began surviving entirely on captured rainwater and the large stores of soybeans in the ship's hold after several months members of the crew began suffering from scurvy due to a lack of nutrients one by one over the months the crew started dying while they drifted farther and farther from home. After more than a year adrift, only three people were left. The captain, Jakuchi, <laughs> and two members of the crew. Their names aren't important. All three were suffering from the effects of scurvy and likely close to death when their ship was discovered off the coast of California in 1815. That was a long time ago. Remember, the Edo period. The three Japanese soldiers became the first people from that country to set foot on American shores. They had drifted over 5,000 miles and were lost at sea for 484 days. Even 200 years later, they still hold the Guinness Book World Record for the longest time adrift at sea. 484 days. I'm just going to say that again so that can sink in. 484 days. Unreal. But at least there was a few of them. It wasn't like they were just by themselves. So, This next story I find absolutely fascinating. This happened not too long ago. 
Harrison O'Keen. Harrison O'Keen was a 29-year-old cook, and he was the sole survivor, he's just a cook, and he was the sole survivor of a tugboat, which overturned after being battled by heavy swells. Eleven other crew members died as the vessel sank some 12 miles off Nigeria's coast in 2013. This man was actually using the toilet when his ship began to sink. Scrambling out of the shitter, he was unable to reach an emergency exit hatch and watched in horror as three crew members were sucked out into the churning sea. The water swept him into another bathroom as the boat plunged 98 feet into the freezing depths. Wearing only his underwear, the man prayed as water seeped in slowly and steadily into the four-foot square air bubble in his bathroom. This is a quote from him. All around me was just black and noisy. I was crying and calling on Jesus to rescue me. I prayed so hard. I was so hungry and thirsty and cold, and I was just praying to see some kind of light. He had been underwater for almost 60 hours when he heard hammering on the deck. A team of South African divers scoured the waters on a presumed body recovery operation and were shocked to hear a faint hammering in reply. As a driver's light approached, Okini, or whatever his name is, hesitated to swim out of his air pocket in case he startled the diver. He thought the diver might have a knife on him. This is his words again. I went to the water and touched the diver. He himself shivered in fear. So I stepped back and just held my hands in the water and waved it in front of his camera so that they could see the images in the ship above. Once Harrison had been located, there were worries that he would panic during the rescue because his body had absorbed potentially fatal amounts of nitrogen. So he'd get a serious case of the bends, basically, if he went up fast, right? He's 98 feet below the surface. That's three atmospheres below. It goes 30 feet increments, um, which is ridiculous. I'm a certified diver, and I can only get to 65 feet, which is two atmospheres, and you have to uh, rise slowly to let the nitrogen basically leak out of your bloodstream so you don't get the bends and, you know, you'd be severely crippled and or death. This dude had been down here for two days, and so his blood is full of nitrogen, so they got to take him up very carefully. So they were nervous. They were very nervous when they had to figure out how to take him up. So let's see what happened. His heart would not have been able to pump back on the land because it was so full of gas. So he was strapped into diving equipment and then led to a diving bell, which took him slowly to the surface. There, he spent two days in a decompression chamber. See, that's what he needed. To survive that long at that depth is phenomenal. Normally, when you dive recreationally, you do so for no more than 20 minutes at those depths, said a training consultant for the Professional Association of Diving Instructors. 98 feet below the surface, and this bozo lived. Incredible. Again, you go online, there's pictures of this dude just sitting in his bathroom. Imagine just sitting in the pitch dark, and you're like, how am I not dead? Like, is this boat sunk? Like, what happened? Right? It's really unbelievable. Lewis Jordan. In 2005, Lewis's fish boat capsized, destroying any means he might have had to call for help. He broke his shoulder, but that didn't keep him from hanging on for 66 days. He credited rainwater, using his clothes as a fishing line, and the power of prayer for his survival. 
However, many people didn't believe him because his story wasn't very believable. An inexperienced mariner lost at sea, clinging to the hull of his overturned sailboat and surviving on raw fish and rainwater for more than two months alone? Out in the elements? Why wasn't he sunburned? How did he stay warm and dry and just how many fish did he catch out there? He didn't look like a guy who had been missing many meals, if you know what I mean. The skeptics had good reason to be suspicious, because Louis Jordan didn't spend 66 days on top of a capsized sailboat, and he didn't survive on raw fish alone. Those were erroneous details, attributed to a Coast Guard chief petty officer in the initial media frenzy following the rescue. Oh, man, they blew it, huh? So this might explain why so many of the online commentators reacted with disbelief, prompting a wave of follow-up reports questioning the validity of Jordan's sea story. Jordan released the statement attempting to set the record straight. His boat capsized a couple of days after he was sailing out at the ocean, but it righted itself as it was designed, and he stayed inside the cabin to keep dry and avoid the sun, and he survived the first few weeks on his supply of canned food. Jordan says that he rationed food and the water he collected in a bucket, and he tried to keep his calorie expenditure low. Jordan was 37 years old when he was spotted and rescued from his disabled vessel, a 35-foot sailboat about 200 miles off Cape Hatteras. He was airlifted to a hospital, but he refused treatment and left with his parents that night. Some parts of Jordan's stories can't be proven. In an interview, he described sailing alongside two killer whales who had such beautiful faces they looked so friendly. He also described sailing through schools of glowing jellyfish. So this dude, man, that sucks. You, you know, whatever happened out there, he was stuck at least for some time by himself, whether he had supplies or not. And then you get onto land and everyone's like, you're full of shit, buddy. Fuck you, liar. You, you want our sympathy, you're a jerk. And, man, that must suck. But, yeah, he went through something. Not quite as bad as some of these other people, but to have people not believe you is pretty unreal. Salvador Ordinez, Jesus Vindada, and Luco Rendon. These three Mexican fishermen set out to hunt sharks. However, their boat's engine failed and the men were adrift at sea for nine months before being found in August of 2006. They were thousands of miles from their home. And that's it for that story. Very short. <sighs> Chuck Noland. In 1995, Chuck Nolan was a time-obsessed systems analyst who traveled the world resolving productivity problems for FedEx. After flying through a violent storm, his airplane crashed into the Pacific Ocean. Chuck was able to escape the sinking plane and was saved by an inflatable life raft. But in the process, he lost the raft's emergency locator transmitter. He clung to the life raft and was eventually washed upon an uninhabited island. Four years later, after a large section of a portable toilet washed up on the island, Chuck used it as a sail in the construction of a craft. After some time on the ocean, a storm nearly tore his raft apart. Now there is actually audio from this, so let's take a listen right now. 
Wilson! Wilson! I'm sorry! I'm sorry, Wilson! Wilson, I'm sorry! I'm sorry! Wilson! That was the hard-to-listen-to audio of Wilson the Volleyball falling from the raft and being lost at sea, unfortunately. This left Chuck overwhelmed by loneliness. However, he was found drifting and rescued by a passing cargo ship roughly four years after his disappearance. Now, on a more serious note, and a much more depressing note, we're going to talk about Terry Joe Duperot. Now, this this is no laughing matter. Get ready for this one, man. Buckle your seatbelt. Terry Joe was just 11 when a family vacation turned tragic in 1961. The Bluebell was a 60-foot twin-masted sailboat on which a series of brutal murders took place on November 12, 1961. The ship was chartered by Dr. Arthur Duperot for a trip from Fort Lauderdale, Florida to the Bahamas, which parted on November 8, 1961. Accompanying him was his wife, Jean, and his three children, Brian, Terry Joe, and Renee. The ship was skippered by a decorated World War II and Korean War pilot named Julian Harvey, and he was accompanied by his sixth wife, good lord, Mary, whom he had married in July. Late at night on the return voyage, Harvey allegedly drowned his wife, and when discovered by the doctor, Harvey killed him, then killed his wife and two of his three children, Brian and Renee. Terry Joe was awakened by screams and ascended to the deck where she saw the bodies in the ship's main cabin and a bloody knife nearby. Harvey then yelled at her to stay below the decks. He scuttled the sail ship and prepared to leave in a dinghy. Terry Joe was able to untie a two by five foot cork float and launch herself just as the ship sank. After drifting for four days without food or water and near death, Terry Joe was rescued by the Northwest Providence Channel, which was a Greek freighter. Harvey had been picked up three days earlier in the dinghy along with Renee's dead body. He told the United States Coast Guard investigators that a squall had brought down the Bluebell's mess, and a hole had happened in the ship's hull. This then ruptured the gas tank and started a fire. He claimed that he had found Renee floating in the water and tried unsuccessfully to revive her. Now, an autopsy did show that she had died of a drowning. Whether it was an accident or murder is undetermined. After Harvey was informed of Terry Joe's rescue, he checked into a motel under an assumed name and committed suicide with a razor blade. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that he was probably guilty. It is believed that Harvey planned to kill his wife to collect on her $20,000 life insurance policy. That's pretty lame, 20000 But he was observed by the doctor, and then he had to kill him and his wife and two of his kids and whoever may have witnessed the murder. It was found later that Harvey had survived a car accident earlier in his life, and this accident claimed one of his six wives, 
and that two other boats he owned had sunk under suspicious circumstances, yielding large insurance settlements. So this guy has a history of being a scam artist, and this time he was going to kill that girl, and the family saw it. He had to get rid of them. He had it all planned, and he just had one little problem. He didn't actually kill little Terry Joe. He just left her on the ship and then tried to sink it not realizing that as it sank and he got on the little dinghy raft she jumped on this tiny little uh, quirk float they call it here and survived to tell the tale of what this bastard did which is unbelievable like what are the chances of this again go on the internet there and use that google machine and you can look at footage of Terry Joe being rescued from the ocean on the tiniest tiniest little life raft I mean it's it is so unbelievably small. It's an absolute miracle that this girl survived, even though her whole family was brutally killed. Unbelievable story, right? Adrian Vasquez. This 18-year-old and his two friends decided to go night fishing off the coast of Panama in 2012. They lost control of the boat in the strong currents and were swept out to sea. Adrian, the missing 18-year-old, was found after being lost at sea for 28 days. He was rescued by the Ecuadorian Navy 600 miles from his initial starting point. They had brought a large container of water and caught many fish, but things took a turn for the worse when their motor died unexpectedly. Their jugs of fresh water ran out and their catch went rotten. Eventually, the two other boys died at sea leaving Vasquez to push their decomposing bodies overboard and face the elements alone. The three had been depending on rainwater and raw fish to stay alive. Vasquez himself nearly died of dehydration, but a sudden rainstorm saved his life. A thin and malnourished Vasquez was drifting near the Galapagos Islands when he was spotted. Dougal Robinson Is it Dougal or Doug? Dougal? Dougal Robinson? Dougal Robinson? What kind of name is this? On January 27, 1971, Robinson departed from England on board 43-foot wooden schooner built in 1922, which his family had purchased in Malta with their life savings. He was accompanied by his wife Lynn, his daughter Anne, his son Douglas, and his two sons Neil and Sandy. Over the next year and a half, they sailed across the Atlantic, stopping at various ports of call in the Caribbean. His daughter, Anne, retired from the voyage in the Bahamas. She's like, I had enough, Dad. Can't do it. During their transit of the Panama Canal, the family members took aboard an inexperienced crew member named Robin Williams. He would later go on to win many awards for comedy and other serious roles. I'm just kidding. It wasn't, they're not talking about real Robin Williams. But um, he, was, uh, he accompanied Robin Williams, accompanied them on the next segment of their voyage to the Galapagos Islands, and beyond to the islands of the South Pacific. On June 15, 1972, the ship was holed by a pod of killer whales, again, and sank approximately 200 miles west of the Galapagos Islands. The group of six people on board escaped to an inflatable life raft and a solid hull dinghy with little in the way of tools or provisions. Using the dinghy as a towboat, powered by a jerry-rigged sail, The group made its way toward the doldrums, not sure what that is, hoping to find rain there so they could collect drinking water. They did so successfully, 
while also catching turtles, dorado, and flying fish to eat. What's a dorado? However, the inflatable raft became unusable after 16 days, so the six people crowded into the dinghy with their supplies. They then continued to use the wind and current to their advantage, moving to the northeast towards Central America. By their 38th day as castaways, they had stored dried meat and fresh water in such quantities that they intended to begin rowing that night to speed their process. Well, these people are making out like a freaking party. However, they were sighted and picked up that day by a Japanese fishing boat on the way to the Panama Canal. Robertson, who had been keeping a journal in case they were rescued, recounted the ordeal in the 1973 book Survive the Savage Sea, on which a 1991 film of the same name was based. I have not seen this yet. I have to check this out. The story was later revisited by his son Douglas in a book titled The Last Voyage of the Lucette. I can't even say these two people's names. I'm not even going to try. Two fishermen from Samoa and the South Pacific survived a remarkable four months adrift at sea in a small metal boat in 2001. The pair was rescued in Papua New Guinea, 2,400 miles from their homes in Samoa. A local doctor treating the two survivors said it was a miracle that they survived. Miracle! Unfortunately, when the fishing trip started, there were four men, so two of them died of thirst and starvation during this horrible ordeal. The fishermen said that their boat got into difficulties off the coast of western Samoa when they and their two colleagues caught a heavy load of fish and the boat began to take on water. You idiots! Unload some of the fish, my god. They managed to right the small dinghy by cutting away the fishing lines and the two outboard motors, thus lightening the load but were left powerless as currents pushed them out to sea. They cut off the motors? Who does that? One of the survivors told the local media that they survived by eating, you guessed it, fish and drinking rainwater. The two men were finally rescued after 132 days at sea by a villager in Papua New Guinea. All right, this next one, this is kind of like the big kahuna of surviving at sea stories. Check this guy out. Salvador... Alvarenga. Jose Salvador Alvarenga holds the record for the longest solo survival at sea. He was adrift for 438 days and traveled over 6,700 miles. Alvarenga is a fisherman, and on November 17, 2012, he set sail from a fishing village of Costa Azul in Mexico. <coughs> With him, was Ezequiel Cordaba, another fisherman who Alvarenga had never worked with before. Shortly after leaving the shore, the pair's boat was hit by a storm, of course. The storm blew the ship off course and damaged the motor and most of the electronics on board. Alvarenga managed to contact his boss on the radio before it died, but he was unable to help. The storm lasted for five days when it ended, Alvarenga and Corbado had no idea where they were or how to get home. The storm had destroyed most of their fishing gear, leaving them with only basic supplies. And with no motor, no sails, and no oars, their boat was helplessly adrift. The two drifted for months, surviving on rainwater, 
drinking piss and caught sea animals like <laughs> oh, it's it says drinking pee but I changed it to piss um they caught sea animals like fish and turtles and birds after four months Gorbada gave up hope he stopped eating and starved to death oh god <sighs> unfortunately Alvarenga left the corpse on the boat in order to have somebody to talk to for about six days until he realized the insanity of the situation. Alvarenga says he was considering giving up too, but he decided to persevere. He tried signaling every ship he saw, but none of them spotted him. He continued surviving off rainwater and sea animals and kept track of time by the phases of the moon. I would not know how to do that. More than a year after the storm that set him adrift, Alvarenga spotted land. He abandoned his boat and swam like hell for the shore. Hell or high water for this guy. And found himself on one of the Marshall Islands on the other side of the Pacific from where he had started. He was taken to a hospital where he made a full recovery. He was later accused of cannibalism in order to survive, but there is no such evidence. So this dude... Lasts for 438 days. Has a terrible ordeal. I read a really, really in-depth article about this. It was absolutely fascinating. I think it might have been Variety.com. I'm not sure. Anyway, crazy story. Unbelievable things this guy had to go through. And then people were like, you are a cannibal. You ate your other crew member guy who was on your ship. Corbado. You ate Corbado, you son of a bitch. And could you just imagine that? Anyway, there was really no evidence of such a thing. I mean, how could there be? Like, how would you ever know that? It's, you know, I don't think he ate the guy because the guy probably got gross really quick. And was he going to eat him raw? I mean, I don't know. Anyway, he says he didn't do it. So I'm just going to take his word. And you know what? Even if he did eat some of his friend or whoever this guy was, fuck him, man. He's just trying to stay alive. I'm a staunch supporter of cannibalism, and I always will be. Cannibalism 2020 for president. And now we come upon our final Abandoned at Sea story. Hope you guys have been enjoying this podcast, these crazy tales of survival. Now this one has a, a little bit of a twist, perhaps you could say. Oh, I'm giving away details, Phil. Come on. Okay, you guys ready? Jennifer Appel and Tasha Fuava. These two freaks were residents of Honolulu. I know it well. I used to live there for three years. Anyway, they were living with two dogs aboard their sailboat, the Sea Nymph. The women said that they set sail from Hawaii on May 3rd, 2017 for an 18-day, 2,700-mile voyage to Tahiti, but encountered a Force 11 storm. That means winds between 64 to 72 miles per hour with waves from 37 to 52 feet. This initial storm lasted three nights and three days. Four days later, the boat's spreader broke. What the hell is that? The pair considered returning to Hawaii, but did not because neither Maui nor Lanai had deep enough harbors to accommodate their boat, the Sea Nymph. Further problems occurred including tiger shark attacks, damage to their engine and mass, and malfunctions in their radio telephone and satellite phone. Lacking communications, the sea nymph failed to avoid a typhoon 
with 100 to 150 mile per hour winds and 40 foot waves. Good God. How did they stay alive? The women headed for Kiribati. I'm not sure where that is. But couldn't land due to broken communications equipment. Okay. The Cook Islands were their next target. But a white squall and the one girl Fuavavia's inexperience pushed them further west. On October 1st, the sea nymph came within two miles of Wake Island. And the women aboard managed to contact officials there. However, the boat was on the wrong side of the island to receive assistance, and both the swell and winds were pushing them westward, preventing them from looping around. On October 24th, 900 miles southeast of Japan, the sea nymph was spotted by a Taiwanese fishing vessel. Initial reports say that the Taiwanese notified the United States Coast Guard in Guam and began towing the lost boat, but compromised its hull. Once they knew that rescue was on the way, Apal and Fuviava began broadcasting a May Day. Apal later changed this part of her story, saying the Taiwanese ship had instead attacked the sea nymph by intentionally failing to keep the appropriate towing distance and collided with their much smaller vessel. She said, The Taiwanese fishing vessel was not planning to rescue us. They tried to kill us during the night. Apal claimed that she was able to use the Taiwanese satellite phone and alert the USCG of all of this because nobody aboard the Taiwanese ship spoke English. The USS Ashland was on a routine deployment nearby and arrived on October 25th at 10.30 a.m., thus rescuing the two women and the two dogs. The Navy determined that the sea nymph was unseaworthy and left the boat adrift off the coast of Asia. In a news conference aboard the USS Ashland, Apal stated that had they not been able to locate us, we would have been dead within 24 hours. Apal later said that they didn't activate the EPIRB, whatever that is, I guess that's the emergency thing, because their boat was still seaworthy. These calls are for people who are in an immediate life-threatening scenario, and it would have been shameful to call upon the USCG resources one not in imminent peril, and allow somebody else to perish because of it. That's what this appell said. She followed this up by saying, Had we had known that our calls were going nowhere, we would have used our emergency communications, but hindsight is twenty twenty. Appel defended their decision by saying, We took our chances with the man upstairs, who gave us grace and allowed us to still be here today. After she amended her version of the events with the alleged Taiwanese attack on the Sinev, Appel said that she did not use the emergency beacon because it would have alerted the Taiwanese captain, as opposed to her telephoning Guam and relaying her emergency in English. What, what is going on here? What is the true story? Appel and Fuava said they encountered a Force 11 storm on May 3rd. Remember this? This was that 64 to 72 mile per hour storm with 37 to 52 foot waves. Good golly. However, the National Weather Service in Hawaii recorded no organized storm systems near the Hawaiian Islands on the dates of May 3rd, 2017 or any of the few days afterward. Not only is this claim bogus, they also said that they could not land at the harbors in Maui and Lanai because 
they could not accommodate the size of the sea nymph. This is untrue. Hawaii had multiple, multiple places that they could have docked on both islands. Furthermore, Appel's descriptions of the other landing opportunities not taken seem to be confusing. Like, oh, we're just not going to go there. Let's just, oh, our communications weren't working. Like, what? As for the claims of the tiger shark attacks, marine biologists refuted this, saying that the macro predators do not behave in the way that the women described, nor do they grow to the ridiculous lengths that the women reported. The United States Coast Guard announced that in June they had contacted a ship calling itself Sea Nymph in the vicinity of Tahiti. That ship's captain said that their ship was in no distress and would make landfall on the next day. According to the time level given by Appel in Fu'a'a'a'a'a, this interaction happened after they allegedly had lost the engine and the mast and rigging system. On the Today Show, Appel produced a GPS tracking unit, claiming that it was from her boat and that it recorded the sea nymph nowhere near Tahiti. Who's telling the truth here? I'm going to go with the Coast Guard. Personally. As for Appel's allegations against the Taiwanese ship, the Taipei Economic and Cultural Representative Office called them untrue. According to their reports, the shipping vessel stopped sailing right after spotting Miss Appel's boat and never attempted to ram their vessel or kill them as they had claimed. So there's a lot going on in that one. <sighs> okay, these women leave Hawaii. They've got all sorts of resources in the boat. Really quickly, they say they hit a terrible storm. Their communications gets messed up. But they still have this emergency beacon calling thing. They refuse to use it. Uh, then they say that these giant sharks were, were hunting their ship. Uh, what else happened here? Then they said that they hit a typhoon of 100-150 mile per hour winds. I don't know if that can be confirmed. They can't land on the Cook Islands. They can't land on Wake Island. They're having all sorts of problems. And then they say they were attacked, but yet they also said that they talked on the Taiwanese ship to call the Coast Guard. Were they attacked? Were they not attacked? There was I don't understand what's going on here. I kind of feel... Like these women wanted to be famous because they were on a lot of the talk show circuit and things like that. After this happened, they were considered, you know, heroes for surviving initially. Then people started to be like, what is going on here? What are you talking about? How come we didn't use your emergency thing? And then when they did use the emergency beacon, they're like, we would have died that day. But they clearly were not in that bad of condition. So very suspicious. I am going to err on the side of caution and say that these are some scammy artists they're lying, lying SOBs, and that they kind of wanted to use an abandoned at sea um, scenario to get their 15 minutes of fame. Now, I could be wrong, and if I did that, I'd be like one of these people that's like, no, you were a cannibal. You're like, no, I just did what I did to survive. I'm, I'm accusing these people of being liars, and maybe it was a true story. I don't know. You be the judge. If you have anything to say about this, a question or a concern about this story or any of the stories, send it to me, Phil, at philinterrupted at gmail.com That's where you can find me. I'm a little spooked out and I'll never go on a boat ever ever again. So that's going to be it. Uh, we are making moves here on Phil Interrupted and we will catch you next time. Peace out!
today's show is going to be all about these unfortunate people. God damn this dog. Be quiet! Soon, Adams jumped overboard as well, muttering something about going to get cigarettes. <laughs> wow, what a classic drunk. The two drifted for months, surviving on rainwater, drinking piss, and caught sea animals like... <laughs> oh, like it's, it says drinking pee. Don't tell me what I can't do! 